Father, thank you for your word. And as we come here today, Father, it is on no other basis that we approach you. It is not because of our worth or our merit. It is not because of any skill that we possess, but it is because of who you are. It is because of your mercy and your grace by which we stand before you this morning. And Lord, as we, as we focus this morning on your word and the way in which we are called to faithfully present your message, I pray that that would be true of, of this message this morning, that we would engage with the unvarnished truth of your word, that you would remove all distraction um, and help us to focus upon what you, what you have for us this morning. And I pray that as we come away from this time, which is a focus on your character as well as your word, that you would help us to have a greater appreciation for who you are, for the wonder of your nature and being, and for the fact that we can be in your presence and, and walk with you. So I pray that you would help us this morning as we examine your word, teach us from it, and help us to be more like you because of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it finally happened. After several years of being a youth pastor here and doing various trips and camps, I finally got the call one time while I was away on a mission trip. And that call was Leanna. She called me and she said, Hey, Lee fell out of bed last night, and he's really in a lot of pain, and I'm really worried that he's broken a bone. Now, at this moment, at this crucial juncture, you know that every man has a choice. He can choose to give the rational, logical, wise advice that, hey, you're right, you probably should go take him to see a doctor and get that checked out. He has that choice, or he can join his predecessors and generations of men before him who say, ah, he's probably fine. He's just whining a little bit. Tell him to suck it up. He'll be okay. So in that moment, I made the wrong choice. And I said, well, you know, kids are dramatic. He's probably just scared that he fell out of bed. He's probably going to be fine. Let him sleep it off. He'll be okay. Well, because my wife is gracious and she is kind, I heard nothing else from her until I got a picture. The picture was an x-ray showing my son's broken collarbone. And so (laughs) after I recovered from the shame of that moment and realizing what a terrible father I am, um, I immediately was filled with compassion for my son and a desire to want to be there to help him um, and to comfort him during that time of pain. But I also realized that there was absolutely nothing I could do to help him. Not only was I hundreds of miles away, but even if I was there, as a parent, you, you, know, you have that feeling that there's nothing I can do to really help you in this. I, I can't fix your problem. I can comfort you and I can be there with you for it, but, but I can't fix the pain or the problem that you have. The best I can do is take you to a doctor and get you the best treatment possible, but there's very little I can do to help fix that root problem or issue. And so he was in very good hands with Leanna, and she took, she took great care of him. But that tension that parents feel of, of realizing our children's pain and realizing their, their need and being concerned and even compassionate for what they experience, but also feeling our inability to help that problem or to fix anything is a feeling that our God never experiences. And so as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see a God who is motivated by compassion and care and love for his children, but also a God 
that possesses all power, all authority and ability, and because of that, is always able to help his children in their time of need. And so, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at God's compassion and his care, then we're going to look at his holiness and his power, and then we're going to see what is our response to a God who acts in that way. So, we pick up in Exodus chapter 2. We have a little bit of chapter 2 to finish that functions as a segue between what we talked about last week and what we talk about in Exodus chapter 3. And so, we'll begin with Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Now, as you will recall, last week, we dealt primarily with Moses, and we saw Moses' initial salvation where he was drawn from the Nile. We saw his, his failure where he murdered an Egyptian, and then we saw his fleeing to Midian where God provided for him graciously again. But if you remember, God was noticeably absent from that passage, and we said that that was an ellipsis. God was left out of that passage actually to draw our attention to all of the actions that he was doing. But in a sense, what we have here is sort of what's really going on in all of chapter 2. Maybe in chapter 2, you you have that experience of Moses being, being lost and abandoned and forgotten. The people being in bondage as slaves and, and abandoned, and God seems absent from everything. And then you hit verses 23 through 25, and you see the reality of what is going on during this time. God is far from absent. God is far from apathetic about what is going on with his people. And so while all of this is playing out on earth, verses 23 through 25 give us the heavenly view of what is happening during that time. While God feels absent from what's happening on earth, we get to see the heavenly view and perspective of how God is postured toward his people and what he is actually thinking. So notice the four action verbs that describe what God is doing during this time. Far from being absent or uninvolved about what is going on with his people, we see that God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant. He saw the sons of Israel, and he took notice of them. You are never forgotten by God. God is never absent from your life. He is aware of everything that happens to his children. Now, notice that that doesn't mean their suffering stopped. It doesn't mean that the hardship they were going through ceased immediately. God's awareness and his care for people doesn't always translate into the redemption that we would want. But as we walk through that hardship and that suffering, we are comforted and encouraged with the knowledge that our God is there. Our God hears our needs and our requests, and God is aware of all of it. We do not serve a a transcendent, separate God who is not aware also of the needs of his people. He is a God who hears and remembers his covenant and acts because of his great name. So, after hearing this scene in heaven and seeing what is occurring while he appears absent on earth, we then jump to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, heaven comes down to earth. 
And that scene that we see in heaven now filters down into Moses' life. And we see the, the connection between God and heaven and what is happening on earth. So we pick up with chapter 3, verse 1, and we will read through verse 9. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not being consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burning up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here, but remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which with the Egyptians are oppressing them. And so in this encounter, we are introduced to the character of our God. Moses' point and his focus in this narrative is to explain the essential attributes and character of our God. So Moses finds himself in the wilderness. He's pasturing the flock of his father-in-law, and he happens to come upon the mountain of God, which would be Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. So this is his first encounter with God at Mount Sinai. And so as he goes up the mountainside, he sees a bush that is burning but is not consumed. And so he, we understand that he experiences a theophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of God. And so Abraham experienced a theophany when the three visitors came to see him and Sarah and to promise them that they would have a child. Jacob experienced a theophany when he wrestled with God. And so now Moses joins those ranks to experience a theophany as well, seeing Christ, seeing God himself in a pre-incarnate form. And so when we realize that that's what's going on, he is witnessing God in a pre-incarnate form. The description that we get of who God is is incredibly important and insightful. So the bush that is on fire catches Moses' attention, but notice the detail that catches his attention. The thing that catches his attention is not how hot the fire was, not how big it was, not the color of the flame, but the thing that grabs his attention is the fact that this fire was burning without consuming the bush. So what does that tell us about that fire? It's a fire that doesn't require fuel to burn. It can exist without fuel to burn. And because of that, it also cannot be extinguished. And so when God reveals himself to Moses, 
the closest physical entity in this world to reflect his character and nature is fire. This fire exists and burns not because it's consuming something, but because it exists in its own essence as fire. So when we look through Scripture, fire has an important place in all of the Old Testament. It communicates purity. It communicates ferocity. And it communicates so much about God's holiness and His character. So Moses is captured and grabbed by that idea, and so he turns aside to look at this fire. And notice the instructions that God gives to him. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then God said to him, Do not come near here, but remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The primary thing that this theophany communicates about our God and his character and nature is that our God is a holy God. The ground around the bush was holy, not because of anything special that happened to that ground, but because God was there. God's presence made that spot holy. And so look at the response that humans have to the holiness of God. God tells him, do not come near here. Why? Because holiness requires separation. Holiness cannot be in the presence of sinful, fallen humanity. To become close to a holy God is to take your life in your hands. And so when God tells Moses to stop, it is because his purity and his holiness requires that separation from sinful man. And then he instructs him to remove the sandals off his feet. And so feet in that time were were dirty. Before you had a meal, you were required to wash your feet because they were dirty. And so if your feet required being washing, imagine how filthy the sandals were that you wore. And so this communicates the fact that, that filth, sin, impurity cannot be in the presence of our God. And so those commands to Moses are instructive, and they re- reveal much about the character and nature of our God. And so if this is who our God is, if he reveals himself to be this consuming fire of holiness and purity, what does that mean for humanity? Well, if we think about Christ, and if we look forward to his ministry and what he accomplishes for us, we see a perfect foreshadowing of what happens here. Because we are separated from God and we are left without hope in this world because of our sin. But it is Christ who brings reconciliation. It is Christ who makes us holy so that we can be in the presence of a holy God. And that holiness and separation happens because of our filth and our impurity and our sin. And it is Christ who removes that impurity and that sin from us so that we can be in the presence of a holy God. This is our God who we serve as well, and we are grateful for the work that Christ accomplished on our behalf so that we can be in the presence of a holy God. And so after this description of God's character and nature, who he is, he gives a commission to Moses. So we'll read again verses 7 through 9. The Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people. Notice the possession that God places there. These are not just a people. This is not just Israel. These are his people. They're his possession. 
who are in Egypt, and I have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware. Notice the present tense of that verb. He has heard, he has seen, but he is aware of the current present suffering that they are going through. So, the result of that is that I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, and not just to rescue them, but to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so this builds off of what we talked about last week, that that all God would have had to do for the Israelites would have been to stop their bondage, to stop the slavery and the suffering that they were experiencing. But that wasn't good enough for God. Not only did God stop the evil that was happening to them, but God gave them an incredibly gracious gift. He gave them a land, and not just any land, but a land that was rich and that was flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey are foods that are high in fat and sugar content, so pretty much my diet, right? Um, and, And the land is flowing with them, so it is a land that is abundant with these things. So it's a beautiful picture of God's gracious provision for his people, going above and beyond what was necessary to give them an incredible gift. So, how is he going to accomplish this redemption? He's going to accomplish it through a man, through Moses. So read verses 10 through 12 with me. And now come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, God said, Assuredly, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now, Moses' response to God's commission is rather famous. Moses gives four reasons why he should not be the one to go and to free the Israelites. The first reason we just read and the last reason both focus on his inadequacies, the fact that he doesn't feel competent to do the work that God has asked him to do. The two uh, issues in the middle deal with what people will think of him. Because remember, he fled from Egypt as a murderer, and so he's concerned with what people will think about him. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Concerned with my inadequacies as well as what other people will think about me. Those are very modern issues that we deal with when, when we walk with the Lord and when we volunteer for service. And so it's interesting to see how the Lord responds to these issues that Moses brings up. And I think there's a lot for us to learn from his response to Moses' concerns in this passage. So, come and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt, but. So there's our contrast, Right? Right away, we know this isn't going to go the way God had said that it would go. So, but Moses said to God, who am I? Now, the repetition of the phrase I am through this passage is fascinating. If you look up in verse uh, 4, when God speaks to Moses, what does Moses say? Here I am. And now, when God speaks to him, he says, who am I? And, of course, we end with God's claim that he is the great I am. So Moses responds with, who am I? 
thinking that he is not sufficient or capable in and of himself. And, and at first glance, that seems like a pious remark, right? I mean, you've just been confronted with an infinitely holy and powerful God, a God who reveals that he cares for his people and also is powerful enough to deliver them. And so, in the face of that God, it seems pious to say, who am I to do this great thing that you have called me to do? But in fact, Moses' false humility here covers his fear and his disobedience. What really is at the heart of Moses' response is a heart of disobedience. He does not want to do what God is asking him to do. And so he is hiding behind his insecurity and his insufficiency to hide his disobedience of God. If an infinitely holy and powerful God comes to you and gives you a direct, specific command, what is your only response? Yes, sir. Whatever you say, I will do. We do not respond to the direct commands of the Lord with, well, who am I to do this thing that you have called me to do? We respond by saying, yes, sir. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. And so Moses' question, who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt, is answered by the Lord, but also the Lord doesn't necessarily answer it. Because if Moses' concern is about himself, if I, who am I to do this, we would expect that God's response would be, well, you are whatever. But that's not how the Lord responds, does he? Look at verse 12. He said, this is God, assuredly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign that to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the, when you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And so God said, Moses, your concern is absolutely legitimate and valid. I'm going to validate all of the insufficiency that you feel and the insecurity that you feel. You're right. You are not enough to do these things. But I'm not, that's not the problem. I am the one who's going to accomplish this. I, as the infinitely holy and powerful God, am the one who is going to redeem my people. And I'm choosing to use you as an instrument and a tool in my agenda. And so it's not your job to free these people. It's my job, and I'm going to take care of that. What I need from you is a willing, obedient servant. And so, how many of us, when God comes and knocks on the door of our heart and asks us to serve and to be available for Him, respond with the same kind of hesitation and selfishness that Moses exemplifies here? I am not worthy to do that. I am not good enough to do that. How could God possibly use me? Well, God doesn't need the most skillful, talented people in the world. What God needs are people that are willing to obey Him. A heart of service is primarily a heart of obedience. And so as we look at the example of Moses here, we see that what God asks of his people, what, how we respond to a God who is compassionate and kind and also infinitely holy and powerful, is that we respond with obedience. We obey the commands that this God says in order to fulfill his will and his calling in our life. So then Moses gives his second concern, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, 
The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, this is what you are to say to the sons of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is the name for all generations to use to call upon me. There may be no more famous passage of Scripture than this one. The fact that God reveals his covenant name to Moses as the great I am. This is a tetragrammaton, a word that cannot actually be pronounced. And that also highlights the holiness of our God. He is so holy that his name cannot even be uttered. And so, in his consistency of not really answering the questions that Moses raises, God does the same thing with this question as well. Moses wants a name for God like the name that the pagans' gods had, a a name like Ra or, or Ammon or Baal, some sort of name like that. And God shows his separation and his otherness from those man-made false gods by saying, I don't have a name like the pagan gods. I don't have a name like the nations. My name is simply the fact that I exist. And so in comparison to all of the other gods of the nations, to the plethora of gods that are worshipped in this world, I am the only God who exists. My name is the fact that I exist. And so much like the the fire that burns without any fuel, God reveals that he is a non-contingent being. He requires nothing else to exist. He can exist in and of himself. And so he is a compassionate God who cares for his people. He is a holy and a powerful God, and he is the one God who exists. And so with that picture of who our God is, Who are we to disobey him? If he asks us to obey him, we simply follow his command and we say, yes, sir. So we pick up in verse 16 and we finish out the chapter. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And so I said, I will bring you up out of the oppression of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then they will pay attention to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, had met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion." And so I will reach out with my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that I will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians." Now, there's a lot of details in that passage, but I don't want us to get lost in in the details of that, and I want us to look at the big picture of what God is asking Moses to do. In essence, God is revealing his strategy for how he's going to 
uh, redeem the people, how he's going to free them from the power of the Egyptians. So what is his strategy? Well, if he were pitching this strategy to a group of leaders or businessmen, it would be a pretty bad strategy. It would be the same strategy that's employed to bring down the walls of Jericho. The strategy that God tells Moses to do here is simply to go and to say the words that I tell you to say. Really? That's all Moses is supposed to do? He's not supposed to raise an army? He's not supposed to drum up a bunch of support behind his charismatic leadership? No. No, Moses is supposed to go and to speak the words that God has given him. It is the word of God that will accomplish the redemption and the freedom of his people. And so in this, we look back to Genesis chapter 1, a crucial chapter in our Bible, because there we see that the word of God accomplishes creation. It is the word of God that can bring things out of nothing and that can bring life to things that were once dead. And in the same way, Moses' confidence is not in his skill or his ability or his numbers, but his confidence is in the power and the efficacy of the Word of God. When a compassionate God who is holy and powerful and exists, when that God speaks, that Word is powerful and effective. And so the only strategy that Moses needs The only thing that he needs to accomplish his mission is the Word of God. Notice that when he goes, God has already predicting that the Israelites will listen to that Word, but the Egyptians will reject it. And so even there we see that idea of election, that not everyone responds in the same way to the Word of God. Some respond for salvation and some ignore it because they are blinded and they cannot see it. But as we think about that principle, simply the the efficacy and the power of the Word of God, we conclude with this reminder that we hold the words of an all-powerful, compassionate, existent God. And so if we have these words, we are beholden to listen to these words and to obey them. And so do we give this word the right preference and authority in our own lives? Are we willing to submit to this word when it calls us to walk in a certain way and to live in a certain way? Do we allow this word to have not just its inerrancy, but also its authority in our own lives? It also applies to to what we do in worship and how we structure our service. Everything in the service should put us in in connection and exposure to the unvarnished Word of God. That is what accomplishes life change in our hearts. That's what accomplishes our salvation, and that's what helps us grow and mature in our relationship with the Lord. And so as we conclude this morning, and we summarize what we've seen this morning, we've seen that we serve a compassionate God, but a God who is not impotent, a God who can also act and accomplish our deliverance through His power. That God also speaks, and He has given us His Word. And so the application for us this morning is, what will we do with the Word that God has spoken to us? Will we place ourselves in submission and obedience to this Word, allowing it to have authority in our lives and walk according to how it calls us to live? Would you join me in prayer? 
Father, thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture. Thank you for the example of how we ought to live in light of your word. Thank you that you've left us not alone or without direction in this world, but you have given us your word to guide us and to provide hope for how we ought to live. And so we thank you for this truth, and I pray that you would help our lives to align with that reality um, in this week as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.